Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. For today's episode, I had the great fortune to be joined by Dr. Charlie Hall, Professor Emeritus at SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry. He was here to talk about his recent book review in bioscience of Peter Victor's new biography of Herman Daly, who recently died at the age of 84, but whose ideas are still very relevant today. Um, and in addition to chatting about the book, we also talked about quite a few other topics relating to the intersection of biology and economics and energy, of course, and kind of how those concepts are interrelated, interdependent, and have some very important implications for both biologists and humanity more generally. I'll leave all of that to Dr. Hall to explain, um, and I'll also drop a few important links in the show notes that I urge you to check out. But with no further ado, let's go straight to the interview. Dr. Hall, thank you very much for joining us today. Happy to be here. Okay, so I guess, you know, one of the first questions we might begin with is, um, you know, the, this book review you've written about uh, a biography of Herman Daly, um, you know, is referring primarily to economics. And I note from, you know, your CV and your history that you're an ecologist. And so I guess, you know, one of the first things we might ask is, you know, what's going on here at this intersection of um, ecology and economics? And, you know, what can you kind of tell us about that? Okay, well... Yes, I am an ecologist. I call myself a systems ecologist. I was trained by Howard Odom, who is, uh, in his imperfect way, the most intelligent person I've ever met, and fantastic PhD advisor. And he wrote Environment, Power, and Society uh, in my last year that I was with him. So he introduced me to the concept of thinking about social systems as ecosystems. And uh, in, in that book, Environment, Power, and Society, they, in the first chapters, there's a series of little um, pictures that show how a city is like an oyster reef and so forth. And if you take a systems and an energy perspective, then you're dealing with uh, the same thing. I, I would, I've worked in some 30 different countries, and I was often asked after I'd just been some place dealing with a new problem uh after just a day or two somebody would say my my god you're you are uh, just been here looking at our situation um whatever it is fisheries agriculture whatever just for a, a day or two and already you are telling me important things about my own situation that never occurred to me in studying it for decades and how is that and i I said, well, you know, it's it's not a new ecosystem to me. If you have a systems perspective, there is enormous similarity to all ecosystems. If you think about it, not in terms of all the species necessarily, uh, although that when it's important, but thinking about where the energy comes from, how it's captured, where it goes, what it's used for, how people manipulate it, and so forth. Um, including human settlements and cities and so forth, uh, I use the same basic diagrams for a city that I would use for uh, for an estuary or, or for uh, grassland. It's it's a lot of basic similarities to an ecologist, and and I would also like to add that I perceive myself as a natural scientist. And most of economics is done by people who call themselves social scientists. And so a lot of my early work in economics 
uh, which was influenced by Herman Daly, um, was about looking at human ecosystems using the natural sciences, not the social sciences. And uh, I think you can get a tremendous amount of insight by using the natural sciences and the scientific method, uh, which incidentally economists don't necessarily use, um, and they certainly do not seem to be beholden to the laws of thermodynamics or the importance of energy or uh, including whole systems analysis, such as where does their uh, stuff come from and so forth. Uh, it's there's a great deal that you can gain by looking at a city or a country as an ecosystem and analyzing it accordingly. That makes sense. And I think it leads nicely into the way actually that you opened the book review, which was with a sort of cautionary note for biologists who are increasingly being asked to make economic analyses. And that could be something like, you know, analyzing the value of an ecosystem service, for instance, say a fishery, or, you know, the, the value of carbon sequestration within, um, you know, a different sort of ecosystem. And, you know, you kind of described that there are some fundamental incompatibilities uh, between the way that economics is practiced in the contemporary time and the way that biologists typically, you know, conduct their practice. So, you know, there are some fundamental incompatibilities, um, some shortcomings, uh, perhaps in terms of the amount of rigor that's practiced by economists at certain tasks. So I was hoping you could just sort of expand on that a little bit and give us an idea of um, what's going on and what biologists have to kind of worry about. Uh, I first put this uh, in a paper that was in Bioscience in 2001. Uh, in its reference in my uh, daily review, um, where he just said, and I'm not the first to say this, uh, amongst the best people that had said this was Vasily Leontiev, who was a Nobel Prize winner in economics himself. And he said, how long will people in, and he gave a whole list of real sciences, uh, keep from criticizing economics, which is a whole house of cards. It's not based on real science, it, it, and, it, and it, in fact, um, it uh, breaks the laws of thermodynamics, and it uses improper boundaries, and it doesn't use the scientific method. These three points are made very clearly and with examples in the 2001 paper in Bioscience, which is referenced. So. Um, I'm not, not the only one who does this. Uh, I also quote uh, uh, a colleague of mine, uh, John um, Erickson, who says, who publishes a book with the title, uh, you know, Protect Us from the Fairy Tales of Economics or something like that. He uses fairy tales. And he's an economist. He's a real economist. And uh, He's uh, less polite in that respect than Herman Daly, but Herman Daly uh, thought that as well. So, uh, but the economists, it's not that they don't answer our question, uh, they don't even pay any attention to it. And even though there might be 100 people that have asked this question of economics, and I can give a whole list if I spend a little time at it, of both economists and natural scientists, you know, the, the economists don't care. 
uh, they circle their wagons and and talk about burrito efficiencies and stuff like that and pay no attention. And, and I would like to add that's only neoclassical economists because until 1880 or so, economists or what was called moral philosophy back then, um, the physiocrats and, and even the classical economists were much, much closer in their way of thinking to my perspective now, although they didn't know so much about the importance of fossil fuels, um, so that it's only this particular brand of economics that's uh, somehow hoodwinked the, the world into making it look like they know what they're talking about, which I don't think they do. Of, of course, they're good at certain things, and uh, I don't complain about uh, people who do good accounting you know, that kind of thing. But uh, if you go and open up chapter one of uh, any economics textbook, they'll put in this diagram of firms and households as if an entire economy was only made of firms, business firms and households, producers, direct producers and consumers, even though nature is the ultimate uh, producer and they don't think about raw materials. They don't think about energy except as a commodity. And um, they think energy is unimportant because it's only five or 10% of GDP, but it's because you get so much punch, as I mentioned in the article, for so little money that energy is so important to our economy. So all of our wealth around it that you see around us, our houses and our food, and these are all based on cheap, cheap energy, especially cheap oil. Okay, so your criticism is essentially that they're leaving out the element of energy in their models, and in so doing, essentially leaving out the element of the you know very constrained resources of the natural world. Well, they make they make something called production functions that have only that only only have labor and capital. Uh huh. So if you ask a physicist or a real scientist, you know how do you make something? How do you make some economic product and They'd uh, scratch your head a minute. He said, well, you, you know, you take your, some stuff from nature and you apply energy to it to turn it into ever more refined form, closer and closer to what you want. And then sooner or later, you get something that you you want. And that's how things are made. Right. And was it was it was it Daly's observation that, um, you know, that the the energy element was something that they tended to disregard because, as you said, it, of its cheapness? Um, yeah. The price was cheap. But but look at it this way. Well, I said this in the article. You could you can buy a barrel of oil now for 70 bucks or something like that. Um and I think I said a hundred in the the review, but then it it does the physical work of a strong person over two years, which would cost you eighty thousand dollars. So, I mean, think of digging a grave, do it yourself with a shovel, and then, you know, get a dollar's worth of diesel and a device to use it, and, and you can dig the grave for, you know, relatively few dollars. And, and you know, talk about agriculture and tractors, on and on and on. It, it's, a, it's a whole ecosystem of production, of turning raw materials in, into goods and services. So in, back in that 2001 bioscience article, 
we have a diagram of how economists think uh, the world works, firms and households, and we have a more complex one, starting with nature, about how economies really work. Well, that should be taught to every youngster taking his first course in economics. And in fact, the first, I think very strongly that the first course in economics should use uh, our textbook, Holland Clickgard, Energy and the Wealth of Nations, an introduction to biophysical science. So, you know, there are other good books around, but it, it, they're being told fairy tales from, from square one. It's as if you were doing biology without mentioning thermodynamics. Can you do that? Hell no. You know, or can you can you do biology without talking about the the larger milieu in which life must exist? You can't do it. You can't do it for economies either. And so, you know, what what Daly would say and and what you've also said many times, you know, throughout your career is that you know, we're in a period of a relative glut of, you know, cheap energy where we have this, you know, resource that we can exploit very easily or had. Um, and it allowed us to, you know, kind of create this exceptional period of growth. Um, and it's not going to last. Um, and, you know, it's it, we're going to be constrained by these, you know, ultimate sort of planetary level, um, you, know, cons- you know, constraints or holds on our, our, our ability to continue to, to grow at that level. Well, of course. I mean, I, I published a paper recently um, that talks about how much oil we have left, which is basically half of what everybody else is saying. And, and not only that, it's it's getting the quality is declining day by day. But you know, this is just the tip of the tip of the iceberg of, of what the depletion of our best grade fossil fuels will mean and is meaning now. And there's lots and lots of examples. I I personally uh, highly recommend reading this book by Nafiz Ahmed. Uh, It's essentially um, uh, biophysical triggers of economic collapse. And I think he does a wonderful job of showing country by country, Egypt, Syria, and Nigeria, and so forth, as countries go through their cycle of oil availability, oil producing countries, as the oil becomes available, things become cheap, and governments subsidize gasoline, and um, people get rich, and often they have more children, not always, but often they have more children. Everything looks good, and then they hit what's called Hubbard's peak of oil production, the maximum production per year, and then it inevitably starts going down, uh, as appears to be occurring for the world as a whole. We had a peak in in, uh, 2018. And so everybody has expectations, and every generation thinks they're going to be richer than the generation before, but hey, that doesn't work anymore. And all of a sudden, you got a lot more people to feed. And people in Egypt, farmers in Egypt, can't even afford the diesel to pump the Nile up onto their croplands. And uh, then you get in political turmoil. And we can see it in country after country that people are rioting. Uh, Peru is in the news today. Uh, people are rioting, and it's fundamentally because the cheap energy has run out, and people 
people expect that as as in economic things that they're owed. Well, they're not owed it. You know, it was we had a period of uh, cheap energy, and we're reaching the end of that, in country by country, and people don't like it. Even France, you know, they were all the yellow jackets and so forth that were out there. Uh, I can go on country by country. Now, they have other good reasons perhaps to to uh, riot as well, but uh, I think it, the ultimate impact, and this is in Ahmed's analysis, is that countries become harder and harder to govern. And we've got that to look forward to. It's not very nice. So what? We have a hard enough time predicting how much oil will be, but we have an even harder time in predicting the the social response to that. So we're in a little bit of a sticky wicket. We've got a a, a growth based model. Um, Not in a little sticky wicket. We're in an enormous sticky wicket. Yeah. So I mean, we're we're constantly pursuing material growth. Uh, yet we're hitting the limits of you know the resources and the amount of energy that we have to expend to get those resources. And, and I want to make sure I say this: we were wrong about fracking. Fracking bought us a decade, maybe a decade and a half, but that's ending now too. And so there are people say, "Oh, technology will come to the rescue," and it did with fracking, sort of. Only for the United States, though. Um, and. Now we're reaching the end of that. And that was highly subsidized. Uh, I wrote an article, uh, uh, a little review for The Hill magazine that uh, talked about how, uh, you know, Trump looked good because uh, the price of energy was low in the United States while he was president. And it looked like the economy was going very well, which of course would be the case because the price of energy was low. Why was it low? It was because all kinds of people were subsidizing the um, the the fracked oil and losing money in the process. Fracked oil, until recently, was a complete money loser. <laughs> I wrote uh, a review saying that Trump has a bunch of losers to thank for his success in economics, and the price of oil was half the price. Uh, during the Trump administration than it was during the Obama administration and less than that than it is now and half the price of what it was in Europe. So, of course, the United States economy was doing well. It had a lot of cheap oil. And that's the way to make your economy work very well. And the history is there. I've written books on it and it's all, all there. And the economists have no... Clue. Right. And l let me try to set up a parallel here and I'll, let's see if you buy it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of reminded of, of Paul Ehrlich's um, you know, population bomb where, you know, the Green Revolution bought some, you know, amount of respite, some number of years of respite from the population concerns is, you know, fracking similar, in the, you know, in, on the energy side of buying us a little bit of time, but not addressing the fundamental problem that we've got this ecological overshoot where we're asking too much of the world, basically. You know, I'm embarrassed that I never thought of that. That's a really good parallel, James. I would say it's exactly parallel. Paul Ehrlich is one of my heroes going way back and still today. And and they're both going to, you know, a perfect storm 
I think the price of oil is likely to go up a whole lot unless we have a, 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 a recession or a depression. You know, if, if that's the case, and price of everything will come down. But but there'll be all kinds of other problems. But if we do not have uh, a significant recession, um, I just don't see any way that uh, you know we can bump around at seventy-five to one hundred dollars a barrel. But um, but Gail Turnberg says there's a there's a critical price of oil. You gotta it's got to be expensive enough so people will go get it, which is maybe fifty dollars a barrel, but not so expensive that it ruins our economy, which might be a hundred dollars a barrel, something like that. So um, I guess at the moment it's seventy five or so dollars a barrel. So that's pretty good for them. So we'll have. You know, the stuff won't hit the fan for a little bit longer, and I can't tell you exactly when, but I would guess within the next five or ten years, we're going to see really serious declines because still more than half of our oil comes out of just a couple of hundred big fields that all were discovered more than 50 years ago. We're just pumping the old oil fields dry. That's where more than half of our oil in the world comes from. From fields that are more than 50 years old and they're they're big fields they're giant fields and they're cheap meaning energy cheap as well as dollar cheap energy cheap hence dollar cheap fields well we're just pumping them dry and they're declining at six percent a year and we're trying to make up for the rest of it with with fracking and uh now we fracked all of the, what are called the sweet spots and we're going after the poorer and poorer quality things and there have been some impressive technological gains, but uh, I think uh, I think we better get used to the idea that the price of oil is going to go up quite a lot. And the way people will see it, it, it will be inflation. And when we see inflation, what do they do? They they uh, blame their politicians. And that's not currently baked into the way that neoclassical economists think about the world. <laughs> they don't have a clue. Gotcha. Um, so I'm wondering now, you know, uh, what would, you know, Herman Daly or, or you, of course, um, you know, have to say about the way that we should conduct ourselves with this knowledge that we are, you know, kind of walking a current, you know, monetary tightrope in terms of the price of oil uh, and it's going in a direction we don't like. Um, you know, we're, we're obviously in a precarious situation. Um, how should we be thinking about the way that we, you know, conduct our societies differently? Well, under the guidance of Howard Odom, I figured this out 60 years ago and didn't have children for that reason. Fair. Um, so that's, it's not just that we need to have fewer children, we have to adjust to a society that is much less energy dependent. And I'm worried about all the gung-ho-ness about uh, so-called green energy, which is not green at all takes a huge amount of fossil fuel to make this stuff. But anyway, uh, the, the green society, if even if we were able to pull it off, um, then uh, that just allows, in many people's minds, growth to continue. And, and that's not going to solve the problem. You know, every, every politician runs on more. And uh, show me a politician that runs on less, and uh, we got to get that going. And so I, I'm not too, uh, I'm not too hopeful on that. Uh, 
And I think that we are even less successful at getting our message to the populace, I mean, than we were 20 years ago. Who thinks about peak oil anymore? Well, peak oil has happened for the world, folks, and it's happened for something like 38 or 46 oil producing countries. And we have it all documented, and that's part of what I've done and proud of and worked with other people like John Halleck. And so we've got some really good, really good data. We're not just uh, spewing off at the mouth here. We get tons and tons of data, as do people like Art Berman and Nate Hagen so forth. I mean, it's just bloody obvious if you get out of your cocoon and you take your scientific approach and the scientific method and the laws of thermodynamics and apply it to the rest of, of human existence. And that, in fact, I think you want to have a big topic on that in, in bioscience. And because uh, bioscience have been how scientists have been too complicit in not uh, not requiring the scientific method be used by those they interact with, and too much of too much of biological policy is not. It says it's science based, but it's not quite doesn't meet my standards. Um, so I think, for example, that the end of cheap oil, the, uh, the depletion of our best oil and gas resources, will be have a much greater impact on, on human society than will even climate change. So I'm, I'm wondering then, you know, uh, we have this situation which our, our various approaches, whether they be in ecology or whether they be in economics, are not including you know these important elements. What would a society or what would a practice of ecology or economics look like that, that managed that in a better way? Well, the, the very first thing is is a systems approach. And what does a systems approach mean? Um, I can't... It, it means that you think about all the influences on whatever it is that you're dealing with, where they come from, you, I find the best way is to make a complete energy flow diagram of whatever the issue is that I'm dealing with and um, start there. And, and to talk to um, people in other disciplines is a good idea too. Uh, what do they think about it and see if you can agree on some kind of approach together. We, we've done this in analyzing the economies of, you know, uh, Argentina and Costa Rica, Bolivia in the past. We've done these kind of things. And um, one of the first thing is, is, you know, it's tell economists that they're welcome at the table, but they cannot be dominant at all. And uh, I mean, certainly economists, uh, many of them are smart and have good insights. I don't mean that. But the, the, the fundamental thing, just go back and read that paper in bioscience. It, it, it Make sure that what you're doing stands the test that we learned as juniors in college about what is true and what is not true. And the only way I know to seek truth is the scientific method. It's not perfect, but uh, let's let's 
apply the scientific method to what we do. And, the, you know, it, sometimes economists do this, by the way, but they haven't done it for the most fundamental perspectives of how neoclassical economics works. And they don't have enough knowledge of history. I wrote my uh, Energy and the Wealth of Nations book, An Introduction to Biophysical Economics. I wrote that with uh, an economic historian, Kent Klitgard. And um, he understands that economics is far more than what is taught to sophomores today. It, it's a rich, complex field with many, many deep questions. Uh, and many of the earlier economists were interested in where does where does economic uh, wealth come from? Where, where does um, where does wealth come from? And let me just give you an idea. Economists say, well, you know, money isn't real. Money has to be backed by, say, gold. You know, but don't do that anymore. But when the Spaniards brought gold from the old world, from the new world, back to the old world, they uh, doubled its amount but halved its value because the real wealth came from the operation of the forests and the fields and the, the farmers and the fishermen and so forth. The energy applied into extracting wealth from nation from nature, and even Adam Smith understood that. Uh, people think he he wrote only the wealth of nations, but he wrote another uh, book on economics. It's a lot closer to what we're talking about here, and he is uh, hardly the gung ho capitalist that he's brought out to. Uh, you know, they just quote. A convenient part of Adam Smith, um, or Jevons and, and um, marginal utility, he gets all the credit for that. But he wrote a book called The Cold Question in the 1850s that is right on the money with respect to all of this. So even some uh, and Ricardo understood diminishing margin marginal utility. He understood how farmland got poorer and poorer as you use more of it, and oil fields get poorer and poorer as we drill more of them. You know, it's all the same. So those guys, the classical guys, were often right on the money. And, and go back to Kinney, uh, who said that, and uh, the physiocrats who said, that, well, all wealth comes from the land. As was the case back then when photosynthesis was the source of all wealth. And, um, it, well, let me take that a little further. And uh, the classical guys like Adam Smith and Ricardo and Marx said wealth comes from labor. Well, it was the energy of labor. Uh, it was the end for, for Kinney, it was the energy of, of photosynthesis that was the basis of wealth. And even, even um, Solo said in the 1950s, well, the basic of wealth is capital, but that's it isn't capital alone. Capital is the means of using fossil energy. And so always they're, they're good economists are talking about where does wealth really come from? And they got it right. It comes from energy, but they weren't looking at it as energy. They were looking at it as land, labor, capital equipment. I see, I think we have an enormous amount, not just me, but people who think like me, to 
the training of young people in economics. And as Daly said, they say nature is living within the economy. That's backwards. The economy has to live within nature. It cannot possibly operate without living within nature, but they have no conception of that. That's Herman Daly's, maybe one of his main points. No, I think that's an excellent note, and I, I think that's probably where we'll leave the conversation. Um, but I did just want to ask you one other question about criticism of Herman Daly, you know, for not being perhaps as enthusiastic um, a believer in evolution as you know one might wish. Um, you now, just I'm, I'm wondering what you make of that, because you know these these types of things come up oftentimes when we're speaking about you know those who've pioneered fields in in earlier times when you know perhaps. There may not have been quite the scrutiny, um, and now we look at it in retrospect and think differently. What do you make of it? Well, let me tell you, my inbox for the last three days has been overwhelmed with this question, and I'm taking a lot of crap from some of my friends, even my economist friends, for defending Herman. First of all, Herman was one of the finest human beings the planet has ever seen. A wonderful, wonderful person. And while he, while he had criticisms, biophysical, I call them biophysical, biophysical criticisms. I don't think he used the word, but it is uh, about economics. He had a lot more, well, as many criticisms of the means and ends of economics. And um, so values were important to him and he thought it was a really degradation of values to say monetary values are the values that we should use. He said there are all kinds of other values, uh, social values and humanistic values. And he would say, did say often spiritual values. And Herman was, um, you know, one of my former students, Cutler Cleveland, told me back in, I guess, 1984 or so, he was down at LSU taking a class from Herman. He loved his teacher, as most people did. And he said, you know, the fundamental to Herman is that he's he's very religious. And uh, I think this reflects maybe his background in conservative Texas, or maybe not. Um, but uh, I argued just two days ago, and I'll send it to you, that Herman's contributions are independent of what he might feel about the existence of God, how the world is formed, even evolution. And I'm not sure that I agree that Herman's views are inconsistent with an evolutionary perspective. I don't know, and unfortunately, he's no longer here to ask him, but I say, you know, let sleeping dogs lie. I, I don't, Herman had so much to add to economics and he basically did not talk about religion or spiritual values in his criticisms and his suggestions for economics. He would sometimes say that we should have different values than just valuing things in terms of money. But and he would include spiritual and let, let the reader decide what he meant by that. So um, I'm in the middle of that right now. 
and taking some flack. And but I defended uh, in my emails and to some pretty potent economists, I defended Her Herman. I mean, I'm an atheist. I, you know, I'm not, and I'm total or nearly so. I don't. Nature is certainly marvelous. I guess I'm a nature worshiper. But um, back at Colgate, I was trained very much that there are questions that science can answer and questions that science cannot answer, including many related to values. And um, I'm uncomfortable with some of my colleagues criticizing Herman's economics because he didn't believe as much as they did in evolution. I, I never heard Herman say, or I don't remember reading anything criticizing evolution, but I think he did think there was some God somewhere behind all this. And I don't know that there isn't. You know, that's, I don't have the ability to answer that question, but I don't think so. Why am I an atheist? Yeah, I think that's. I mean, I think that that's a you know a very interesting perspective, and and kind of speaks to the value of a continuing conversation. But I wanted to thank you, Dr. Hall, for what's been a, a fantastic conversation. I've learned a lot, um, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Bye bye. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder: the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences, and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.